I'm the Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And this is So Curious, a podcast presented by the Franklin Institute. And this season is all about the science of music. And today we are investigating the impact that music can have on our memories. First, we'll be sitting down with memory expert, Dr. Andrew Butson to learn how memory works in our brain and how music interacts with all of that. And then we're gonna be joined by Dr. Vijay Krishnan to tell us about his research into sonic branding and why music and sounds are so effective as forms of marketing. Yeah, Kirsten, you have any particular strong memories associated with a particular song or? Let's see, marketing wise, I'm gonna say, <laughs> this is deep into the recesses. <laughs> Do you remember? That commercial, those plates that looked like animals and they were called Zoo Pals. Oink, oink, Zoo Pals. Buzz, buzz, Zoo Pals. Quack, quack, Zoo Pals. Zoo Pals make eating fun. I was singing this song like a week ago today. I sing it all the time. I haven't heard it in years. I mean, like decades, and I still sing it as an adult now. I think means that it, it made a pretty big effect on my memory. What's yeah. yours? Man. I feel like you've said, like, Stevie Wonder with your mom. Absolutely. Stevie Wonder, Marion McKeeva. I remember being in the backseat of my older brother's car playing Super Cat way too loud. I probably should not have been sitting next to loudspeakers. Uh-huh. <laughs> so to help us figure out why those songs are linked to our memories, we are now joined by Dr. Andrew Butson. Dr. Butson, welcome to So Curious. How's it going, Andrew? Going very well. Nice. We're so happy to have you. Can you introduce yourself and tell the world what it is you do? Absolutely. So I'm Andrew Budson. And after college, I went to Harvard Medical School. And then I did a residency in neurology. So all things related to the brain. But what I really wanted to get at was the mind. And so I did a fellowship in cognitive behavioral neurology. And so I spend my days caring for people with brain disorders, particularly memory disorders, things like Alzheimer's disease, dementia, things like that. And I do research on trying to help people with Alzheimer's remember things better. And I have explored if you can use music to help people with Alzheimer's remember things better. Wow. And so can you explain how memory works in the brain? One of the interesting things about memory is we actually have a couple of different memory systems that we use to remember different types of information. So we use one type of memory system to remember episodes of our lives, like what you had for dinner yesterday or when your last birthday was. You're using your episodic memory system. But if we are going to remember how to play a musical instrument, whether it's the recorder or the guitar or the piano, we're actually using a type of memory called procedural memory. And that's memory that helps us to be able to learn sort of skills and habits and algorithms and things like that. And one of the things that I think is very interesting about individuals with Alzheimer's disease is that Alzheimer's attacks parts of the brain that are critical for episodic memory, but it leaves relatively preserved the parts of the brain that's involved with procedural memory. And this is one of the reasons that many people with Alzheimer's can still play the piano, but they can't remember their grandchildren's names. 
Can you walk us through how the quality of life is affected? Like, can you still have like a good quality of life if you don't have the episodic memory, but you still have all the procedural stuff? You can play the guitar, you can cook a recipe, but you just yeah. <laughs> don't know the people that taught it to you? Absolutely. So if you are in a situation where your episodic memory is not working properly, you will have some difficulty in being able to understand, for example, what's going on in the world, current events, and things like that, because you'll have trouble remembering them. But you can still talk about things that may have occurred in the past. Things that occurred in the past have already gone through this process called consolidation. Consolidation is the process that we take sort of short-term temporary memories and turn them into permanent memories. And that's one of the reasons that patients with Alzheimer's disease can still pull things up from their childhood. And in order to consolidate our memories, we need to sleep. And so it's very important for all your listeners out there to get good night's sleep every night because that's how our memories can stick around forever. So one can have a good quality of life even if your memory for short-term events, for recent events, isn't working well. It basically means you're in the here and now. So somebody with Alzheimer's can participate in any sort of a game or an activity that doesn't require memory. So for example, doing things like puzzles or having a conversation or playing music. Somebody who already knows how to play music can continue to play different songs that they know and really enjoy doing that. Glenn Campbell, in fact, the musician, guitar player, was able to play piano and even give concerts quite far into his own bout with Alzheimer's disease. I want to focus on that for a second. Because that's a great segue into, you know, you using music as treatment. Can you talk to us like, you know, how does memory get tied into music and how does music work as treatment for pulling back memories and making things a little bit more clear for people? When there's a piece of music, it really activates almost the entire brain. When you're listening to a song, your left hemisphere is paying attention to the words that are coming in from that song, the lyrics, the right hemisphere is paying attention to the melodies, the motor movement part of your brain that's paying attention to that beat and that rhythm, which is why people often clap their hands or tap their feet. So we are able to reach individuals with Alzheimer's and other types of dementia when we might not have been able to reach them in other ways by activating the whole brain through music. I'm curious if there's a, a parallel between, you know, you mentioned understanding procedures and things like that. Like I know there's grandmas that know recipes from memory. They don't even need to read it or anything like that. And does music work the same way? You know, knowing how to play or enjoy music, is that an accurate parallel? I think it's a great analogy. And, you know, recipes also use large areas of the brain. One component is a third type of memory that we haven't talked about so far, which we call semantic memory. The word semantic simply means meaning. When you have a fact, 
just something you know that's not connected with any specific episode of your life. We call it a semantic memory. So for example, we all know who Harriet Tubman is, and we all know what temperature water boils at. Those are facts and information that aren't tied to anything in particular. A recipe is part fact. We know the ingredients, we know the order, but a recipe is also action and movement, right? Because we have to be stirring, chopping, baking, you know, it's doing all these other activities as well. And I think one reason that recipes can be remembered so well is it's not just the fact, but it's the fact plus the action. And so this is also going to help that memory stick around a little bit stronger, just like music. Why is using songs so helpful for learning? Is it just the earworm thing? They just get stuck in your brain? Yeah, it is a way that you can build on multiple memory systems to really cement information in our brain. And it does something automatically that is so useful, which is it chains bit of information together. So you know what happens first and second and third through the melody. And that's one of the reasons it's so, so helpful. All right. So I have a bit of a big question to throw at you. Can you talk to us about like how and why we forget and maybe coach us on like, you know, what kind of relationship we should establish with our own memory? And yes. um, and I guess like the back part of that question is how does music specifically allow us to uh, catalog memory? How does that work? So I'm going to tackle the first part of the question first. So it's actually a, a wonderful question, uh, why we forget. And it's the first part of the title of a, a new book that I wrote with a colleague that just came out called Why We Forget and How to Remember Better. And if you think about it, memory is sort of an interesting thing. Like, why is it that we have memory? Why is it important to remember things? I would imagine it helps you better interact with the environment around you, keeps you safe. Exactly. So memory is important because it helps us understand what's going on now, and it helps us to plan for the future and sometimes flexibly, creatively imagine different ways that things could occur in the future and use the information from our memory to help sort of one future occur preferentially over another. And because of that, it's not actually important to remember every single thing verbatim, exactly how it happened in the past. It's much better to understand sort of the core essence or the gist, the general gestalt of the way things happened or the way things generally happened. The other reason it's important to forget things is we want to remember the things that are important and meaningful to us because those are the things that are going to help us to understand what's going on now and plan for the future. So if somebody says to you, hey, what's a great restaurant to go to for lunch? You don't want to have to be thinking of like, every lunch you've ever had in your entire <laughs> life, right? You want just the really good ones to stick out in your mind. So our brain is actually really good at forgetting those lunches that aren't important 
and it helps us to preferentially keep just the ones that are outstanding. I imagine that you are familiar with this quote because it's so much within your work, but there's this quote from Maya Angelou. The gist of it is people are are not going to remember what you said or what you did. They're only going to remember how you made them feel. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect segue to get back to your other question, Bay, which is, you know, how does music sort of fit into all this? A lot of it does have to do with the way that music makes us feel. Because in fact, when we're remembering any type of information, we are sort of actively constructing our own narrative that goes with whatever it is that we're experiencing. Music can make us feel happy, it can make us feel sad, it really creates a, a feeling. And when we have memories that are charged with emotions, that's another thing that really helps us to keep those memories for a very long time. It's insane how powerful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know that's the, the name of this season. We're going to keep learning about this, but we just keep having our minds blown. Thank you so much for coming on the Soul Curious Podcast. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Budson, for coming on the show. That was awesome. Now to help us explore how brands use music and sound to make us remember things, we are joined by Dr. Vijay Krishnan. Thank you so much for joining us, Vijay. How are you? You're so welcome. Thank you for having me of in course. your show. Yeah. So can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure thing. I come from India originally. Uh, I came to U.S. in the year 2005 to first earn a PhD in marketing and business administration. And I started out as a tenure track professor with Northern Illinois University. And by and by, I'm the chair of the department now. That's my second avatar. In my first avatar, I was in India in the Indian industry corporate world for many years after my MBA and engineering. But I grew up in a musical family. So I'm a fifth generation musician. I play the Indian classical music on the violin. It's not even held this way. It's held another way. The whole stance and everything is different. But I saw it when I was five, I'm 61. Music has been with me forever. Dr. Vijay, I'm already impressed. You said fifth generation. That's a musical family. Yeah. That's really, really musical. <laughs> it is. So you do a lot of research into sonic branding. Can you explain what that actually is? I always say this, that you can shut your eyes, but you can never shut your ears. Sound is all-pervading. It's always present. And although visual stimuli trumps sonic stimuli, Sonic stimuli always uh, get your attention, right? The ambulance or the sirens or the calling bells or what have you, notifications. So it's a great way to brand using sound. Sound has been used to brand, create attention and awareness and, in fact, liking for many brands and more generally in consumer behavior and in the marketing domain. For instance, there are studies that show how in a mall, if you play slow music, people walk slower and shop longer. And if you play fast music in a fast food restaurant, people will eat out and cut out faster, so the tables will turn around faster. So there's a direct business implication for those kinds of things. <laughs> Kirsten and I locked eyes like, our jaws what? Dropped. <laughs> Research in this area has expanded to maximize, optimize consumer behavior in many ways, in many different interfaces. 
And the sonic interface has multiplied, you know, given that we are surrounded by car radio, all kinds of, you know, wireless devices, Bluetooth and what have you. You are more accessible on your ears than with your eyes, some would say, right? And I said, we can't close our ears. So that's broadly about sound and its role in communication. Now, within that, there are different ideas. For example, there's phonetic symbolism. What's phonetic symbolism? Like, for instance, the short vowels or frontal vowels, like A, E versus the rear vowels, they have some implications. Like the short vowels like frish versus frosh. There's actually a study done to see if there is a fictitious brand of ice cream named frish versus frosh. Now, frosh seems richer because it's a longer vowel sound than frish, right? They were both hypothetical brand names for ice creams, right? Freeze and fresh and so on. The other idea on phonetic symbolism is creating ear cons, just like icons. What do I mean by ear cons? Like you're downloading a file and you can map it to the sound of a bottle filling with water. So it goes, download complete, for example, right? So it is indicative of things like that. And so you can use sound in multiple ways. Also, it makes for a fluent cognitive experience. So for example, this phone right here, every time I take a photo, it goes making a shutter sound, right? There's no shutter in this digital camera. Yeah. <laughs> it makes the sound, so it gives you auditory feedback. I just took a photo, it came out all right. Or when you use Kindle and you flip the page, it rustles. And similarly, I don't know if you have ever driven an electric car, it just creeps in on you. It's a spooky experience. The transport authorities now are considering including some artificial sounds. So you know, if you're at a crossing, you want an auditory sound to come to you saying a, a car is approaching because electric cars don't make that sound. Oh my gosh. Right. So these are all situations where sound plays a big role. So those are some broad ideas just on sound. So when you come to, for example, um, sonic logo, I call it a SOGO to rhyme with a logo. A SOGO is like a short five to six seconds, you know, the McDonald's or the Nokia. -da 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 -da, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or the Intel. Da -da 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 -da, all these sounds. And there's a science to that as well. For example, it could be mapped on the number of syllables, right? Nationwide is on your side. So that's seven, right? So it makes for good mnemonic as a memory device. You could be mapping it on the basis of number of syllables or number of letters like N-O-K-I-A. That was Nokia. It didn't help them much though because they didn't <laughs> move to the smartphone era. era. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm yeah. blown away. That's that's great. So the difference between like a sonic logo and a jingle is the length, really. It's the length. It's a reminder through the corner of your ear, so to say. You don't know it exists, but it provides you reassurance and recognition. Mm, like the, I was thinking NBC, bah, 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 and then the current Netflix one is just the... Da -da -da, right, right? Yeah, da -da, and like that's all it is. It sounds so average. If you played it for me prior to Netflix adopting that, I would have just been like, 
okay, I would never remember that. Yeah. If I hear it now in the wild, I'm like, who's playing this? 100%. So, Dr. VJ, so if we wanted to create a Sonic logo for So Curious for this podcast, walk us through how we would make the best possible logo according to your research. So it's an interesting question. You know, a Sonic logo may have multiple tones, right? Let's say if it has five tones, like dun, da, 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 dun, one, two, three, four, five. It's easier to remember, recall if the sogo is short. However, a short sogo can also be mistaken for a knockoff brand because you can easily get confused if you have fewer tones. On the other hand, if you have too many tones, it's difficult to remember and recall, but it provides uniqueness and distinctiveness to your brand. Right. So I call this true recognition versus false recognition tension. So there's a trade-off. So there's a sweet spot of about six tones. My research shows that it is harder to copy, but it is also distinctive enough. So in my research, I show, for example, that if something is easy to process, and this is a scientific psychological concept, is that if something is easy to process, then we tend to like it we tend to imbue it with positive attributes. In the same way, if something is clear auditorily, fewer tones, NBC is easier to recognize. But if I do just a little transposition, that's the tone you hear in Airbus when you want to call for water. Wow. Wow. Ta-ra-ra huh. is NBC, ta-ra-ra. And then the shorter version of that is ta-ra. Sometimes the shorter version will play with only two tones, which is to say seatbelt sign has come off or something. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just legit just like thinking, I'm like, oh, wow, wow that's, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So what was so curious sound like? I feel like that's, was that four syllables? Yeah. Although I guess the, it doesn't have to be the syllables of the title, right? Yeah, yeah. And it can be conceptually hanging together. So curious is something about evoking curiosity. So, for example, is very familiar. Mm -hmm. But if I sing the same thing in minor, suddenly became very different and it makes you wonder. And that is curious. So that is the curiosity idea. It looks similar to something I've heard before, but it's not quite what's going on. So that's an example of conceptual fluency. So I talked about fluency. There are two kinds of fluency. One is the perceptual fluency, which is you see something and it looks like and behaves like what you think it should. A horse looks like a horse. That is perceptual fluency. Conceptual fluency would be if you see the word horse and then the word stable comes to you quite smoothly, if I say the stormy river rocked the, you're not going to say Wilson volleyball. It's rocked the boat, right? That's what you're going to say. So conceptually, some things hang together. So similarly, you could think of perceptual fluency, which is if I am so curious. So that's four syllables for four tones. That's perceptually similar. 
or conceptual similarity would be the music is curious. It's interesting to hear how easily affected we are by this, especially when it comes to branding and logos. Like everyone likes to think we're all the exception and we don't fall for this stuff. But like, no, it's so ingrained into us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to ask, are there any ethical concerns marketers should consider when using music to affect customers' behaviors? I'd say creating false alarms may not be good. For example, some things like a police siren or an ambulance tone and things like that are earmarked for specific purpose. So we shouldn't use them frivolously. So this brings me to my current research where, you know, there are 12 tones, right? Now, if you pick any seven tones, you get a scale. So you get, for example, the major scale is do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. But if you raise the fourth tone, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, it becomes a Lydian scale. And there are many scales like that. So it turns out the 32 different scales you can get, some of these scales can be quite haunting. I'll hum one. It can be like disturbing, perhaps. However, lots of times, brands need to evoke negative emotions. For instance, if you're going to advertise cancer from smoking, then you have to scare people that what will happen. Or if you're, let us say, selling insurance, life insurance or anything like that, then you need to sell both fear and reassurance. So the fear is the problem and the reassurance is my brand. So you need both emotions to show up. Currently, I'm working on melodies that tease apart emotions like that fear and peace or disgust and satisfaction. Like nobody wants dandruff. They hate dandruff, but they like uh, head and shoulders. So you, you want to evoke both or you, know, you want anger if it is mothers against drunk driving. You want some amount of anger, global warming, you know, depending on what you're marketing, you want to glare at the person who is double bagging at the grocers. Uh, (laughs) So all of that. So all these different kinds of music can help engender those kinds of emotions, which then persuade the consumer to behave in ways that the brand marketer wants. Music is so powerful. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And a little bit of like a, a comedic note. There's so many like hip hop songs that includes alarms, fire alarms, and uh, sirens. And I'm like, could you not could you not do that, please? Yeah, radio <laughs> radio commercials that have car horns honking. I can't stand police sirens. I'm like, how is that legal? That's yeah, 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 so yeah. scary when you're driving. I've had a couple of moments where I'm like, is that a, an actual alarm? Oh, yeah. No, it's just just a song playing. Yeah. <laughs> just the music. Yeah, really. Imagine you're driving car, listening to the car radio, and suddenly the ambulance sound comes. You might pull over, and it might be coming from the radio and not from behind you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Vijay. This has been so, I mean... It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, this is really interesting work you're doing. Thank you for this. I mean, we hear a lot about the different parts of the science of music, but this is not one we have heard yet. Yeah. Thank you. So we got we have to come up with a, with a SOGO. Yeah, we'll have to come up with our Sonic logo <laughs> and get back to you. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And one 
once again, thank you so much, Dr. Krishnan, for coming on to share your research with us. And based on what Dr. Krishnan told us, we here at So Curious actually developed our own SOGO. Play it. Oh, isn't that so good? All right, play it again. Every time you hear that little melody, you're going to think of So Curious, and you're going to think of Bay and Kirsten and Dr. Krishnan and all of the fun times we've had together. Yeah, play it one last time for good measure. Now that we have harnessed the power of music to permanently stick So Curious into your brains, please be sure to join us next week when we learn all about the wonderful music of the animal kingdom. Some people call me an interspecies musician. I play music with whales and birds and bugs. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one, so be sure to subscribe to So Curious wherever you listen so you don't miss out. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Montefusco. Dr. Jayatri Das is the Franklin Institute's chief bioscientist, and Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger, and I am Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I'm the Bull Bay. Thank you. See ya.